0: From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing His mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken.
1: This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. I'm your host, Paul Aiken, and in this episode, we will hear about what God is doing in West Africa. Our guest today is Mark. Mark and his family live in West Africa, and I've appreciated his work from afar for several years now. Mark, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here, man.
1: Mark, maybe begin by just telling us a little bit about you and your family.
2: Yeah, so I grew up just down the road from where you're at. Grew up in South Central Kentucky. Came to faith at a really early age through my dad, actually. He, he led me to the Lord. and Even at a young age, was able to explain the gospel to me in a, in a way that I could understand. And, and the Holy Spirit took his words and used them to open my eyes and my heart and enabled me to cry out, Jesus is Lord. I was saved. I grew up active in the church. Went to Campbellsville University on a handbell scholarship. That's a story for another day. (laughs) But there I met my wife, began vocational ministry as a student pastor there at Living Hope Baptist Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Ended up getting my MDiv again at Southern. And man, we thought we were set. really thought we would be um, at Living Hope forever. It was a a super church. It is a super church. Um, We had a fruitful ministry. And then really totally Unexpected, uh, we ended up here in Africa. I mean, as we thought about our life plan, our, our life goals, no trajectories that we had had us imagining ourselves living in, in Niger, West Africa, with our four kids. But, but that's where we've been since 2006. That's where we're at now. We came out here as church planners among an unreached people group, the, the Songhai. And then we transitioned to team leaders. And then now we've been serving for the last several years as kind of a regional leader, overseeing our IMB work for a cluster of countries.
1: Mark, thanks for sharing how, you know, a boy from Kentucky ended up making his way all the <laughs> way over to West yeah. Africa. That's pretty pretty awesome. You know, West Africa is known as being one of the more challenging places really on the planet. And that really goes back to kind of the history in many ways of, of Southern Baptist work in that part of the world. It's right. you know, there's a long history there, but it's it's always been challenging, just a challenging region and place. So maybe tell us a little bit about the people, the culture, what makes this part of the world unique, but also what makes it a little bit challenging.
2: Yeah, and even before the people, how we even got here was it was kind of like I said a uh, second ago, unexpected. I wasn't one of these kids who, who grew up with Lottie Moon as my first crush. You, know, you can sometimes hear these stories. I'm sure you've heard of these guys. Like, man, in third grade, I knew I was going to be in this place. I'd be in India or I'd be in China. I, I wasn't one of those kids. I'd always just assume that the people who ended up in a place like West Africa, surely they had some sort of supernatural calling or maybe a, a mystical experience. And you know, I just always thought those were the kind of people. Maybe they, they woke up one morning and they're, they're heading to get their coffee and on the way, the lights start to flicker a bit, maybe fog rolls in, the cat's head spins around a couple of times and quotes Acts 1-8 to them. I mean, that's how I assumed you must end up in the middle of Africa, right? So I didn't have an experience like that. I don't even really like cats. And so my wife and I, we just went about our lives in ministry with this really like a false assumption, this unbiblical understanding of, of calling that allowed us to, to rationalize, never really even considering going to the nations. And thankfully, God and his, his kindness to us, through our time in his word, we just began to see over and over this God who from start to finish in the Bible is about his glory being made known among all the nations. And we, we looked at the reality of the world and places all over the world in West Africa, where there's these massive unreached peoples and places. And, and for the first time, really, as a young married couple, Instead of assuming we weren't the ones to go, we began to assume and, and ask ourselves, you know, why not us? Why wouldn't we go? And that's a really s- simple twist on the question. But man, it just rocked our world because it flipped this misunderstanding we had of, of calling on its head. And, and so we through some good advice um, from a professor of ours at Southern at the time, Dr. Chuck Wallace. We just began taking one step at a time, moving forward to the nations and to the Lord closed that door. And he never did. We, we'd never been here. We'd never been to West Africa. We just knew we wanted to leverage our lives, as you mentioned, for the mission of God, whatever, and, and really wherever that meant. And so that led us um, to this people, the Songhai people, meant us for the last 14 years carrying the gospel to them. And then the Songhai, as you asked about them, what makes them kind of unique. They were once this mighty empire covering and dominating much of what is today modern West Africa. And the Songhai were this unique combo of, of sorcerers, wizards, and witches. I mean, they're able to control the supernatural, the spiritual realm, but they also wielded a lot of political and military might. They were these horseback warriors. And then when, when Islam swept through this part of the world um, in the 10th century, it just gobbled up the Songhai. But one of the reasons, as you study the spread of Islam, one of the reasons that it spread so much and so quickly, especially in this part of the world, it's because it didn't call for radical transformation of one's true and really deepest held beliefs. You know, Islam, at least here, it didn't seem so concerned with orthodoxy as much as it was with orthopraxy. And so in other words, you know, you could remain very much tied to this animistic faith so long as on the outside you conform to Islam. And so this is as you know, what's called folk Islam, and that's what the Songhai are. So you walk into any Songhai village, and and it looks very Islamic. You have mosques everywhere, many of them very ornate. You, you see seventh century Arabic dress and culture everywhere you look. But behind all of that are people who still today believe very deeply in an unseen spirit world, who, who wear amulets underneath their Islamic garb, who take their kids to the witch doctor, not the mosque, when they get sick, who whoever their farms are failing or their wives are bearing, aren't seeking answers in Islam, but in this more animistic faith. And it's a people who even today are still giving their children over to be possessed by demonic forces. It's really, it's a dark, dark people group among whom the light has just recently began to shine.
1: Mark, you said earlier that you'd been in West Africa since 2006. So over the last 14 years, obviously there's been many, ups and downs, but as you think about the last couple of years, tell us one of, the, one of the biggest highlights, one of the most encouraging things that you've seen. We know that people all over the world are praying for you and for your work, so tell us a little bit about what God is doing. Oh
2: man, yeah, and it's, it's so encouraging in the role that I'm in now. I get to pull back and see what He's doing, not just Among the Songhai, but in so many places, just story after story, I could tell you of the gospel going forward to unreached peoples and places, how disciples are being made, how churches are being planted among these people groups. But uh, specifically, you know, in our role, we think about what's happening among the Songhai. And I just think about Ibrahim. Ibrahim was a man who had lived most of his life having never heard the gospel, little, no access to the gospel. However, when he finally did begin to hear, God opened his heart and he believed. And despite numerous threats and very real threats, Ibrahim was very vocal from the very beginning. He was super passionate, super bold about his new faith. He led many other Songhai men and women to Christ, including his wife, Horei. And even after they lost their home and they lost their farm, this couple, they just, they were special and they remained joyfully steadfast in their faith, even in the face of much loss and much suffering. But then a little bit after that, after Hure had come to faith, she got sick and passed away. And man, it was like the religious leaders in that village, they, they finally had the sermon illustration they'd been waiting for. Like they'd just been waiting for a moment like this. And so literally hours after Huray had passed while her body's still inside their home, Ibrahim's there filled with grief. These religious leaders and the elders of the town they begin to gather a crowd around Ibrahim's house, outside of his home. And they begin to taunt and they begin to, to mock. And then they, they turn to the crowd and, and they say, don't you see what happens like when you follow a different religion? This is the path. This is what happens to people who abandon the faith of their ancestors. It's death, it's disease, it's disaster, it's curse. But then they turn their attention to Ibrahim and they said, you know, your foolishness, Ibrahim, has cost your wife her life. And we ought to, like, we, sh- we should just let her rot on the ground. No one should bury her. She should be like a donkey or a dog. Just let her rot there on the ground. But if you'll come to your senses, we'll take this dog of a wife of yours, and we'll help you bury her. But you've got to come back. And this is, this is the ultimate threat that people made in that village and they make all over this region keeps a lot of people from confessing Christ, at least publicly. Like, if you die, no one's going to bury you. That doesn't seem like a a big threat to us, but it's huge among the Songhai. And so here's Ibrahim, still full of of grief, this weak, poor farmer, and he looks right at these most powerful men in the village, these elders that wield all the power of that village. And he says to them, look, if I have to bury her by myself, I will. But there's no way, like no chance that I'm turning back from following Christ. He has saved me. It's him that has given me life. It's just this really incredible line in the sand type of, of moment, watershed moment for that village. But, but even more incredible is what happened next. And what happens next is one by one, other believers who were there in that crowd that day, many whom Ibrahim himself had led the faith, who up until this moment had kept their faith very secret, out of fear for moments, just like this. Like, this is exactly why they didn't become bold. This is why they weren't too vocal. They didn't want this type of persecution coming towards them. But something about seeing Ibrahim's boldness in that moment, they begin to step out from the crowd and they gather around Ibrahim. And then this small group of men together take Hore's body out into the field and they bury her. And, you know, Paul, something began that day that almost nobody noticed. These men carrying this body into a field while their village mocked and cursed them. It was obvious to everyone that day. They, they lost their Songhai community. I mean, they, that was obvious and clear. These were outcasts now. But what wasn't so obvious, at least right then, immediately, was that they had found a new community. And this was a better one. This community, this was part of a kingdom that was going to endure long after the Songhai kingdom and every other kingdom in this world fades. And so this, this little outcast group of some of the poorest people on the planet, they began to come together weekly around a common table, around a common confession. And those of us that were ministering there and the entire village, really, we just watched as the gospel began tearing down centuries of cultural baggage. We discipled them and trained them and then we watched them as they made disciples who made disciples who ended up planting a church in Al-Qaeda-occupied territory. I mean, these guys, this little group of ragtag believers, they began sending out cross-cultural workers to other areas that had no access to the gospel. You know, this is the story that that we just get to see all over the continent playing itself out. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, you know, something that started out so small so weak so seemingly insignificant it starts to grow and mature and then you look up one day like we did in this village and it's this unstoppable force this mustard seed it's become a tree and it's got birds building nests in it so we get a seed pod so so exciting just to see the kingdom of god is advancing in africa and it's advancing through weakness through smallness through suffering through many trials and through many men like Ibrahim. And it's a joy to be a part of.
1: Praise God, it sounds to me a lot like the New Testament and it sounds like you're getting to see some of the New Testament unfold right in front of your eyes and so we praise the yeah. Lord for the for the work he's doing there. I referenced this earlier, but for those who are listening who may not be as familiar with West Africa, we know this is is not an easy place to live and an easy place to work. We hear stories you know, fairly often about missionaries who go and then have to come back home, either due to illness or a variety of other things. So can you tell us a little bit about the standard of living and just some of the challenges that are there in West Africa?
2: Yeah, this is the, the part of the world, you know, our, our history, missions history tells us Southern Baptist men and women, uh, 150 years ago, they, they would pack all their belongings in a casket I'm in mean, set cell because they just knew we're, we're not coming home healthy. Like we know we're go- going there to die. And because of their faithfulness, Africa is really what it is today, poised to be the next wave of, of missionary advance. You know, to use Dr. Platt's words, the, the mission field has, has truly become the mission force because of their sacrifice. We didn't pack our stuff in a casket. We packed it in a crate. And we do hope one day we'll return, but it doesn't, there are real challenges that still exist in this region. I mean, any a single challenge its kind of hard to nail down. There's challenges. that are myriad. They're growing. The, the prosperity gospel is a huge challenge. It, despite a lot of advance in the true gospel work here, the prosperity gospel does continue to, to creep in. It's a big challenge we face in the churches and among the believers in this region specifically our security issues continue to deteriorate jihadist activity is growing and this is just an increasingly dangerous place to live there's the perennial and just ever present challenges that come with living in one of the poorest places on the planet i mean it's just poverty and disease and death are just normal everyday things but you know one one challenge paul i'd like to mention that probably most people don't think about naturally especially when it comes to cross cultural work but at least in my own heart, and this is me just speaking about my own life, I think there's this temptation, especially in pioneer areas on the mission field, to let pragmatism rule the day. And what I mean is just to, to simply focus on what's going to move the fastest and increase the most statistics. Again, it may not a challenge some people think about, but it's, it's a real challenge in my own heart. I think it's a challenge among the mission community. We obviously want the gospel to spread, but but I noticed very early on in my own heart and my own leadership that I have to fight that temptation constantly, especially when it comes to development of our strategy. And so uh, a number of years ago, I started saying something that it kind of became a mantra on our team for our work. And it was simply this, our theology informs our ecclesiology, which drives our missiology. And it's really just kind of an unnecessarily overcomplicated way of, of saying look, what we believe about God as he's revealed himself in his word, that has to, that necessarily must inform what it is we believe about the church, why she exists, what's her purpose, this chosen instrument of God for bringing his glory, making his glory made known among all the nations. And then we said, and then that has to drive how we go about this task. And the challenge is to fight the temptation to reverse that order. Again, I see it in my own heart. I see it even in strategies that that are out there. They want to start with strategy, start with those methodology, and then let that inform the kind of church that will facilitate and fuel their methodology. And then you're just left with going to the Bible to to proof text your strategy. And and again, it's, it's very tempting, very easy to go down that road. And many godly men and women, I think, who truly want to see people come to Christ, truly want to see churches planted, have unfortunately gone down that path. Good motives, but motives maybe not governed by the Word of God. So again, maybe unusual, but I think one of my biggest challenges is to resist that temptation and always draw come back to the Word and let everything flow out of that. Does that make sense?
1: Certainly. Certainly, it makes sense. And I appreciate the way that you're trying to think very theologically about your work and letting doctrines like doctrine of God, doctrine of church really drive your missiology. Yeah. I, think, I think that's key. You mentioned earlier about some local churches that are starting to kind of be planted and starting to grow even maybe small in number and maybe with great opposition but could you tell us some of the things that the local brothers and sisters there the local church in that place tell us some of the things that they're teaching you
2: <laughs> Yeah we need about 400 episodes man o- over and over this is just my life you know we we came out here thinking about all the different ways that we're going to minister among our people and impact this area with the gospel. And the Lord has definitely used us for some of that, I think. But uh, when we look back over our time here, we realize the Lord's kindness in bringing us here was to work on our own faith and to really sharpen our faith, to show us areas where we were so weak in our faith, areas where our faith had deficiencies and we needed to grow and mature and and for us in particular, he just so often uses brand new believers in the faith to teach me these lessons. Just, just one quick story. A while back, I went to visit Mamadou. He was this old witch doctor that I'd actually been able to, to lead to Christ and was discipling for, for several years. So I went to, to visit him a while back. When I, I got there, he's laying on the ground. He could, he could barely breathe, his body was scorching hot with fever. I was like, Mamadou, let's get you in my truck. Come on, we got to go to the clinic. He said, no, 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 Mark. I don't, I don't want to go to the clinic. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe you're too sick to go. So I'm going to go get you some medicine. I'll be right back. And again, he says, no, I, I don't want medicine. And he looks at me, he's just like, would you please just pray for me? Like, I trust, I believe that, that Jesus is able to heal me. But even if he doesn't, I'm ready to, I'm ready to be with him. I'm ready to, to meet him. Now, you might think, Maybe you should think that that I would be thrilled to hear a sentence like that come out of this former witch doctor's mouth that, that I've been discipling for a couple of years. You might think that that would make me happy. I wasn't happy in that moment. I was actually, I'm honest, furious. And I said, Mama, do look, I'll pray for you, of course, but but let me go get you some medicine. You're like, you're so sick. You're you're gonna die if you don't take something. And you're one of the only believers here, this village needs you, they need your witness. And I'm just rattling off reason after reason strategically why he can't die. And he just cuts me off. He grabs my hand, pulls it to his forehead, and says to me, Son, just pray. And so I mumbled this prayer that I didn't really even mean. I said goodbye to him for what I was certain would be the last time. And I drove off angry at Muhammadu. He was, he was so stubborn that he would rather die than let me save his life by spending the 25 cents that it would cost to get him the medicine he needed. Mm-hmm. I got home and later that night, I'm still pouting around the house and my phone rings. It's, it's Muhammadu, And his voice, it was just full of energy, and life. And he says, thank you so much for your prayer. God heard you. God answers you. He's healed me. Praise be to Jesus. <laughs> you know, I, I told my wife, you know, I've got a master of divinity in a drawer somewhere. As I've done here, I enjoy saying things like theology informs ecclesiology, which drives missiology. You know, push comes to shove, I can still parse a Greek verb. And yet I realize over and over, I don't have anything close to the faith Of men like Mamadou, this illiterate former witch doctor who who knows and believes and cherishes and treasures Jesus in a way that Paul, I'm just jealous for. And and it was a clear reminder that the folks that that God has entrusted to us in this season of ministry, that we have the privilege to lead and to interact with and to train, they need from us doctrinally sound and and biblically precise Bible studies on prayer. Like, that's a, a definite need of theirs. But just as much, and what I learned over and over through these men is they also need us to be the kind of men and women who actually pray and who actually believe that, that God has ordained our prayers to matter. And, and I just realized so clearly then, and again, I have story after story like this, of how tragic it would be and how tragic it is if I would spend my life pleading with others through sound doctrine and biblical precision to be transformed by a message that my own heart has grown cold and and hardened to. And so believers like Mamadou and, and Ibrahim and countless others, they just teach me that above all else, you know, I want to be the kind of man, the kind of person who is consistently having my heart wooed and my affections won over by the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. You know, John Owen talks about it's not what we, how much we know. It's the way in which we know it. And that's what these believers teach me over and over.
1: Praise the Lord. We, we have so much to learn from the global church. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing that example. This next question is going to be a little bit more personal in nature, but it's, it's something I ask everyone that I interview. Day after day, week after week, and month after month— Mark, what keeps you there in that place, and why are you giving your life to this work?
2: Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great question. And the easy answer for us would be just the joy that comes from seeing lives transformed by the gospel, from having our own life transformed, again, the, the different ways God and His grace does that through the circumstances, through the people here, but then also just watching the gospel continue to transform entire peoples and entire places. We have this front row view of what God is doing among the nations. And, you know, I'm really afraid sometimes, so many think of Africa in this very singular stream, maybe even people listening, when they think of a missionary in Africa, they picture someone living in the bush in a hut. And that's definitely our history and definitely still some places that that's a reality. But, you know, our focus on this continent has shifted so much over the last decade that Africa today has more Christians than any other continent. And then even through the diaspora and the reality of globalizations, Africans are leading some of the most influential churches all over the world in every continent. And we know Africa is and will continue to influence the global church. And so then we believe we have this small part to play in this, in this season. It's a new role for us in a lot of ways. And, and then while, yeah, we're, we're still needed in some places, less and less to be that end of the spear pioneering missionary, you know, hacking the way through the bush Instead of that being our main focus, we have this unique opportunity and, again, this unique time, I think, to equip, train, and partner with our African brothers and sisters so that they will be the ones to carry the gospel to the unreached peoples and places all over the world. It's just this incredible ministry to have the privilege to to really give our lives to. So, yeah, that's what keeps us going day after day, week after week. What a joy. What an incredible ministry to give your life to.
1: You were talking earlier about prayer and just the the power of prayer. What is your constant prayer for the people in West Africa?
2: Yeah, so as I've mentioned, while we've seen a lot of progress, the task is not finished here. There's still so many places on this continent, peoples and entire areas that don't know the name of Christ, living their lives with with little to no access to the gospel. We still need men and women to— take the gospel where it's never gone to count the cost to go to extreme peoples and places we need men and women to plant their lives in, in africa's urban jungles these massive mega cities to lead gospel city movements in these areas we need men and women um, who will come and equip the next generation of pastors and church leaders who will do theological education and institutions and and under mango trees and everywhere in between. And so my prayer is that the Lord would just send out more workers into this field that is so ripe and it is so ready to explode so that more would join us in this task.
1: Mark, last question. What is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do?
2: Yeah, I think to do what we refuse to do for so long. And that's simply to, to ask yourself, why not me? If there's not an absolutely clear rationale for, for why you shouldn't be at least considering going to the nations, you know, I would just challenge you gently to, to begin to seriously pray and to maybe even take an initial step in that direction. And whether that journey leads you overseas or not, I truly believe that Even taking that first step, it will begin to transform your heart and soften your heart and transform your affections. And you'll find yourself praying, giving and sending others to the nations, maybe like never before. And I know you asked me for one. I could actually say one more thing. I would also say. One more action step I would challenge everyone to take is wherever you're at, look for ways to begin engaging the nations in your city. Like how hypocritical would it be to get on a plane and fly thousands of miles, learn a new language, to share the gospel with Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or atheists, and then neglect those in your own neighborhood and city, like God and his sovereignty. What we just see every time we go back to the States is that God is bringing the nations to you. People are coming to the States from places where they would never have a chance to hear the gospel, never have a chance to meet a Christian. They're in your city. And we would just say to those that are listening to this, don't let that be cause for alarm. Like, Don't let that be a source of anxiety for you. Let this be a cause for rejoicing. You know, Our geography doesn't, or at least it shouldn't determine our affections. Our desire ought to be constant. It should be steady. And it's for all peoples to know Christ And that should be the same if you're in Louisville or if you're in Liberia. So that would be our our challenges to those listening to this.
1: I hope you enjoyed hearing from Mark today. It's always encouraging to hear some of the things that God is doing in other parts of the world. And so as the Lord brings Mark, his family, his work to your mind, please pray for them. Please pray for God to continue to bless his ministry, his work there in West Africa. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary please visit our website, www.sbts.edu BGS, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.